0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Luke's Gospel chapter 19 tonight for our our study. So when, um, when when my older kids were smaller, We used to have the best games of hide-and-seek. They were epic. We can't do it anymore because all of the hiding spots have been exhausted. And I can't fit on top of the kitchen cabinets, which is the only place left, you know, that that I could think of where they wouldn't be able to find me. But we used to have these epic games of hide-and-seek uh, especially when the kids were small. And and it was so much fun just because everybody gets excited and, you know, there's surprise and there's shock and there's kind of fear and joy and it's all mixed together uh, in, in the celebration of adrenaline and, and um, you know, relational parental things. And uh, one of the things I remember, though, is is that as the dad and as the one who had, you know, the, the upper hand, and I always won, by the way, uh, whether I was the hider or the seeker, is that I was, was, you know, always, when I was being sought, when I was the one that was hiding, there was something that I kind of wanted to be found. It wasn't about, like, hiding so good that they would never find me, because then you just sweat, you know, and you want to die. But but I would want to be found. So I would stand with, like, the lampshade on my head in the place where the, the, you know, the high lamp was or something like that. But here's the amazing thing that would happen, small kids, is that they would get so caught up, in in the activity and the excitement of it that they would just run in circles around the house and they wouldn't find me even when i was right there wanting to be found and they would just run around and i'd just be right there and like how many times are they going to run right by and not even find me and so what i would do is after a while i would just start making some noise i would just go you know and, and then they'd go ah! They'd scream and they'd run over towards where they hear the noise, you know, whatever. And they'd run in circles a little bit more and to make the noise. And then finally they would found me. See, what was happening is that though they were the ones that were searching, they were actually a little bit lost. I was right there in front of them, but they couldn't find me. And so what happened is that I was being sought, but I was actually trying to find them. And there was this whole mix-up thing. And so we have in our text tonight, in fact, the title of the message tonight is Seeking the Finder. And it's an interesting passage that's before us. It's Luke chapter 19. What we have in it is we have the story of a man seeking another man who is hard to get to, so he goes out on a limb to find him. And what makes the story kind of interesting is that by the end of it, it's hard to tell which one was the seeker and who found who. As you're reading through it, you kind of think that you know, but by the time you come to the end, Jesus flips it over, and you realize that it's completely the opposite of what you thought. And I really love this passage because it reveals something very precious about our Father, about our God, and it also reveals a privilege that's been given to us that we seldom capitalize on, something that we uh, seldom enjoy. Now, the reason for the passage, and it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I give it to you now so that you can uh, understand on the front side of it, the reason for this passage being in the Bible is given to us. Now, that's always an advantage because sometimes it's not, and you've got to read the passage and try to figure out why God put it in the Bible. But in some instances, God tells you why he put it in. And then this is one of them. And so in verse 10 of the passage, Jesus actually tells us the reason why it's here. He says, for the son of man, for is a reason word, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the purpose. That's the principle. That's the message that this interaction is seeking to communicate to God's people that jesus came at least in part for the purpose of searching out and finding lost people and everything that happens both before verse 10 and after verse 10 is just a story and words that communicate and illustrate that principle so that's the purpose of the story. Now, there's two questions that are answered in this text between verses 1 and 26 at the end of, uh, uh, of the section. The first question is, who are the lost? He came to seek and save that which is lost. So who are the lost? And the second question is, what does it mean that is that he came to seek and save the lost? What does that mean to those of us that are saved? if you're lost it means one thing because you know jesus is trying to find you but if you're saved already then what does this passage have to say to us and so the first part of it verses one through nine answer the first question who are the lost and then the verses that follow verses 11 through 26 answers the second question which is what does it then mean to those of us that are saved now The context and the timing of this interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus, the man in the text, it happens at the very end of Jesus' ministry. So whereas in our last studies, we've been looking at things that happened at the beginning, now we're looking at something that happens about one week before Jesus will go to the cross. And so this is on the very tail end of his ministry Uh, at the timing of this, and we're told in verse 1, the setting and the place. So Jesus is on his way now to Jerusalem, and he passes through, it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 19, that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, I find it interesting that, that Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us where this interaction took place we were told a little while back that before jesus was going to go towards jerusalem he sent messengers ahead of himself into all the villages that he was planning to pass through before he would get to jerusalem so that they would know that he was coming so that they could maybe do some pr work and arrange some things we don't know exactly what they did we just know that he sent them ahead to say jesus is coming and so the fact that Jesus enters into Jericho and the fact that there's a crowd as we're going to see that's around him it shows us that this was one of the villages that Jesus had sent people ahead to foretell that he was coming. Now we're not told about many of the other villages that Jesus passed through. We have a lot of rec- recorded miracles and interactions that happened along the way where it doesn't tell us what town it was in. But in this instance it tells us that it was Jericho and I'm really glad that the Spirit of God put that in, in the text for us. And here's the reason why. It's because, biblically speaking, Jericho wasn't supposed to exist. You remember the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho? Remember the walls that came tumbling down? This, by the way, this Bible study has the potential of being a Sunday school song show. I mean, all of the Sunday school songs, Joshua, Zacchaeus, they're all in here. I'm not going to do that to you. But remember when Joshua approached the walls of Jericho and God caused the walls to fall and the city was overtaken? And what God declared when Joshua took the city of Jericho out was, is that that city was never to be built again, that it was to be condemned forever and that whoever rebuilt the city of Jericho would lay the foundation in the death of their firstborn and they would set up the gate in the death of their oldest. In other words, God did not want Jericho to exist ever again. But in the times of the kings, there was a man who went out and he rebuilt the city of Jericho and he laid the foundation in the blood of his firstborn and he buried his oldest in the establishing of the gate. And it came to pass exactly as God said. Now, you would think that if a city isn't supposed to exist, Jesus might ignore that city and not bless it with his presence. But that's not Jesus. Jesus does go into the city and he does so with the intent of bringing his presence to it and laying a blessing upon it. And that gives me hope. Do you know why? Because there's many things in my life that aren't maybe supposed to be or things that exist that shouldn't be because of choices I made in my past or decisions and and disobedience. And, And because of those things, sometimes I think that I might be disqualified from having God do certain things in my life. You might be here tonight and you might have a child that was born out of wedlock. And somewhere in your mind, there's this hanging conviction that because of the way that child came into the world, they maybe don't have the potential of someone who came in a different way. Or maybe your family or you yourself, because of that, you are somehow restricted from having God's best in your life. Well, this passage tells me otherwise. You might be here tonight and you're in a marriage and you might say, well, my marriage is kind of the kind of marriage that never should have been because because of the foundation of it, because I knew I wasn't supposed to marry this person and yet I did it anyways. Or there might be many other ways or areas of your life where you say there's something that's real about my life today that if I had made the right decisions earlier, this wouldn't be true in my life. And because of that, I'm restricted from what God really would do in my life. I want you to know tonight that that's not true. That by Jesus passing through Jericho and blessing it with his presence and laying down one of the greatest truths that we have in the Bible, what he declares is that he can wash away the past and he can do things in your life in spite of the errors that you made before. And that gives me great hope. It says that he entered and he passed through Jericho. But then when he gets there into this village that shouldn't have been, in perhaps a place that Jesus shouldn't have been, Jesus finds a man in a position in his life that he probably shouldn't be in. It says in verse 2 that, Behold, there was a man whose name was Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, that means tax collectors, and it says that he was rich. Zacchaeus, the chief of the tax collectors, is there. Now, this tells us, this description of him giving us his occupation, a lot of things about this man Zacchaeus. What we learn of him right off the bat is that he was a man who was immensely hated. And here's why. Because at this time in Israel's history, they were controlled by Rome, meaning that the taxes that were levied against the people of God in these days were given to a foreign nation. And thus, the taxes that were collected by Rome were collected by people that were appointed by Rome. Now, Zacchaeus, we're going to see, is not a Roman. Zacchaeus is a Jew. The way that they would bid out these posts or, um, what's the word, recruit these tax collectors is that they would tell them that they had to be able to levy a certain amount of money. And so they would bid it out and they could pay Rome kind of like a franchise and they could buy into this business of collecting taxes. And then Rome would say, here's your quota. You have to give us from that region this much money for X, Y, and Z over this period of time. And whatever else you can get is yours to keep. And so the way they would make their living is that they would gather what they needed to for Rome... And then they would tax the people over and above that in order to provide for and supply for themselves. And because they were working on behalf of Rome and taking money from their people and funneling it to a foreign nation, they were considered defectors and traitors. Tax collectors were amongst the most hated of all of the people that were there. In fact, they were so hated That they were considered sinners by the Jews of Jesus' day in a class that didn't even deserve the title of sinner. They were in a totally separate class. We know that because we see it every time they're spoken of in the New Testament. It's tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors and the sinners. They weren't even, they were so low they couldn't even be classified with them. They came to John the Baptist. And they wanted to hear what he had to say, and they said, what must we do? And John's word to them was that they were to collect no more money than that which was appointed by Rome. John the Baptist was acknowledging the fact that they were as dishonest and bad as the people said that they were. Even Jesus gave credence to the fact that tax collectors were so bad because he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47... Jesus said these words. He said, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans or the tax collectors do the same. And if you salute your brothers only, what do you more than others do not even the publicans so? Jesus would say later on in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31 when he was giving a parable about obedience to god his application to it the second half of verse 31 jesus said verily i say to you that the publicans and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of god before you for john came unto you in the way of righteousness and you believed him not But the publicans, the tax collectors, and the harlots, the prostitutes, believed him. And you, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe him. So even Jesus acknowledges the fact that to be a tax collector is the lowest of the low. There is no greater level of sin that is listed in the Bible than a tax collector and a prostitute. That is as low as it goes. If you try to find something that's listed that's worse than that in the New Testament, you won't find it. And so if you were a tax collector, you were considered a sinner on a different level. And we're told that not only was he a tax collector, but he was the chief of the tax collectors, the ringleader of them, and we're told that he was rich. And what that tells us is that everything that was bad about tax collectors was bad about this man, Zacchaeus. He was wicked in the eyes of an Israeli culture. And I want you for your consideration to realize that a tax collector in these times amongst the people of God was the equivalent to what we would call a pedophile or a rapist. That's the way they were thought of in that context and in that culture. It was as low as you could go. So the lowest thing that you can think of in today's context, that's what Zacchaeus was. That's how the people thought of him. He's a pedophile. He's a rapist. He is not fit to be called anything. He's a dead man walking. What well, we're told concerning this man, Zacchaeus, now that gives sheds new light onto that nice little Sunday school song, doesn't it? About the little wee little man who just couldn't get, you know, no, no, this was a bad guy and it tells us that he sought to see jesus who he was probably he heard the word of the messengers that came through jesus is coming now he sees the crowd that's surrounding him he knows why and who it is and it says that he had a desire he was probably more curious than serious but it says that he sought to see jesus who he was and he could not get to him for two reasons one because of the press that is the throng of people that were around him And number two, because he was of little stature, meaning that he was, in fact, a wee little man. He was too short to see over the heads of the people. Now, I don't think it's absolutely necessary for the Holy Spirit to tell us about his size, that he was short. It would have been enough to say that he wasn't able to get close to Jesus because of the throng of people that was around him. I believe that God is giving us a clue here, a little bit of an insight into something that may be going on underneath the surface of what is seen inside the heart and the mind of this man who is curious about this prophet who's making his way towards Jerusalem. Now, whether his size had anything to do with this whole story or not, it's a safe assumption for us to take and to believe that there was something that happened in Zacchaeus' life at some point early on that led him to the place that he's at right now, this place where he is a lost man who has no concern for the people of his nation. And here's why we can safely assume that, is because no one in Israeli society would raise someone with the hope that they would become a tax collector someday. His name is Zacchaeus. He was named that by his parents. Zacchaeus means righteous one. And the names in those days and in that culture, the name was a prayer. The name was to be prophetic. It was something that you desired for the life of the person that you were raising up. So how did this man whose parents aspired for him to be a righteous one, how did he become such a sinful one, someone who was so detested by the people? We don't know for certain. But most likely, there was a series of events that happened to him along the way that caused him to not care or at least tell himself that he didn't care about the relationships that he would have with his own people. Whether or not maybe he was not socially gifted, maybe he was overlooked, maybe he was used by people, maybe he was one of those people that because of his size, he was always picked last. Maybe he could never get a date or find someone that would take interest in him as a young man. And over time, this rejection that happened in his life and I think when you see what happens to this man, you'll realize that he's suffering from some form of rejection. He came to a point where he said, "I can't get the acceptance I need, so I don't even want it. I'm not interested in it. I don't need it. I don't need family." I don't need friends. I don't need society. I don't need Israel. I don't need Israel's God. I don't need anything that's associated with this nation or with this people. I can do completely fine on my own. I don't need you. I don't need it. And it led him to this place where the opportunity arose for him to work for Rome. And he was able to make for himself a whole bunch of money. And he did it. He had an unmet need He told himself, I don't need. But then he did what everyone does, is that he filled that need with something else, the ability to get money, no matter what it would cost or no matter what it would mean. And he did it. He had money, but he was miserable. It brings up a a principle that I think is extremely important, especially in our mindset towards sinful people, is that very rarely... Is a person sinful on a level of sin, you know, deep sin, because they're just plain evil? They're just evil to the core. We all have this fallen nature in us and the potential to be wicked and evil. But most people that do egregious things had something happen in their life that led them to become that type of person. Most of the time, when as a pastor, I deal with a couple and there's been an affair, there's been a breach in the marriage. There is always an offender, the person who went out on the marriage vow and they broke it, they violated the covenant. But when that couple comes in and they want to see what they have to rebuild with, and you begin to pick through what's been going on for the past five or ten years, what you realize is that it isn't just usually the person that went out. Sometimes it is. Sometimes people are just rotten. But most times what you find is that there's two people involved in that broken marriage, and it isn't just the person that went out. There was some things that happened along the way. There was a succession, something that led there. Most times when you run into someone that has deep emotional issues, they're really messed up inside. And because of that, they're confused. They've made some choices. They've maybe gotten involved in some perversion. You start picking around in that person's past, and you're going to start to find that they weren't just born evil there were some things that happened in their life along the way. And A and B led to X, Y, and Z, and they became that way. And usually somewhere in there, there's an unmet need that gets filled with something else that leads them to the place where they become what we would call the worst of the worst. And so we see this man, Zacchaeus. And underneath the surface, we see something in him, but he's curious. He wants to see who Jesus is. And so we're told in verse 4, it says that he ran before and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today, I must abide at your house. And he made haste, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus climbs up a tree. He goes out on a limb, and he waits to see this fleeting moment when this prophet from Galilee, this mysterious yet famous yet hope-giving man passes under him, and the moment will come and go. But as Jesus passes under that branch, Jesus stops, and he looks up. And he doesn't say, hey, tax collector. Hey, sinner. Hey, sinner. Hey, man, who's hiding, who thinks he can go unnoticed. He says, Zacchaeus. He calls him by name, which is paramount. The rest of the story wouldn't happen if Jesus had addressed him any other way. Jesus called him by name, showing that Jesus already knew who he was. And then he called Zacchaeus to come down. And then not only did he call him down, but when he addressed him, he honored him. He said, I'm going to eat. I'm going to abide at your house today jesus does an unthinkable thing in the way that he treats zacchaeus when he sees him he lets him know that he knows him he knows the level of his sin he knows what led him to that point how would jesus know who zacchaeus is unless he knows everything there is to know about zacchaeus zacchaeus knew it that's why zacchaeus came down and responded the way that he responded so jesus knew who he was And then Jesus did something so radical that it made people mad. Because he accepted Zacchaeus in the state that he was in. He accepted Zacchaeus while Zacchaeus was the worst of the worst of sinners. And not only did he accept him, but he embraced him and invited him in. And then he honored him By becoming a guest at his house that day. And he spent the better part of one of his last days on earth. In the home of a man that was sinful and was rejected by everyone else. Now there was two reactions to this instance. One by the people that were thronging Jesus, his followers. And the other by Zacchaeus himself. Notice the first reaction in verse 7. It says that when they saw it. Who's they? The followers of Jesus. When the other Christians, when the multitude that was traveling with him, following with him, when they saw it, the crowd, they all murmured saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Listen, can I tell you, you've got to beware of the followers of Jesus. You've got to beware of the people that follow Jesus. You know why? Because they are always critical of the type of people that jesus wants to associate with it's been this way from the beginning of jesus ministry all the way to the end remember when jesus met the woman at the well even the disciples that were called by him were amazed that he was talking with this woman doesn't he know who she is We see Pharisees critical of Jesus because of a woman whom they knew to be a harlot who broke an alabaster box upon his head and who was wiping her feet with her tears in her hair and they said if he knew what kind of woman she was he wouldn't be allowing her to do this type of thing. Jesus who was the friend of publicans and sinners was the critique of those that followed with him. These were the type of people that Jesus wanted to be around. He cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene, and we don't even know what her past was. We just know it was bad. But what Jesus did in her life was so rich and real that her level of devotion was greater than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus loved to keep company, and people were often upset about it. Jesus would be teaching in a multitude, and two men would come into that multitude holding hands. And Jesus wouldn't make a big deal of it. He wouldn't point them out. He wouldn't embarrass them. He wouldn't call out their sin and work it into his message somehow that they were abomination to him. Maybe Jesus would be teaching and there would be a man sitting in the midst that was dressed like a woman who is obviously confused. And Jesus wouldn't make a big deal of it and, and say, hey, could we get some ushers to please have that person either sit in the back or watch online, but don't you know what this is going to do to us? This is a PR nightmare to have people like this in our church. Jesus had no problem with that at all. There were people that would come and hear what Jesus had to say that were probably still drunk from the night before, or maybe still had drugs in their system while they were listening, and Jesus knew it because he knows all things, but Jesus didn't make a big deal of it or kick them out or tell them that they had to leave. Probably, when Jesus was a carpenter, There was probably a time when someone came into his shop, maybe two men or two women, who said, hey, we're getting our first house. We know it's not right according to the custom of Israel, but we really don't care because culture isn't going to dictate the decisions that we're going to make. We need a table for our first room den. Would you make it for us? According to what we see in Jesus, he would say, yeah, how big do you want that table? What do you want the dimensions to be? Is that for a bedroom, a coffee table, a dining area? Where does that table belong? See, these were the type of people that Jesus wanted to be around. Now, you ask the question, you say, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus honor Zacchaeus? Why would Jesus make more wine for people that were already drunk? Why would Jesus be the friend of publicans and sinners? Because the Bible tells us that he is the manifestation of a holy God. The Bible tells us that he is the light of the world and that in him is no darkness at all. The Bible tells us that he is the fear of the Lord, which is the hatred of evil. And so if he is these things and he hates sin, then why would he embrace, honor, and accept sinners? Why would Jesus do this? I'll give you the answer. It's in verse 8. Watch what happens. This is the second response in the passage. It says that Zacchaeus stood. I want you to underline that in your Bible. Zacchaeus stood. Zacchaeus stood. Jesus gave an invitation, and Zacchaeus responded to it. Jesus embraced a man and accepted him, meeting where he was. Jesus gave an invitation, and Zacchaeus stood. Israel had been trying to reach Zacchaeus probably for his whole life. People had been throwing rocks at Zacchaeus probably for his whole life. People had been refusing and rejecting Zacchaeus probably for his whole life, and he stayed seated. But Jesus came with honor and respect and he embraced a man in a sinful condition and the man stood. He responded to the invitation. Zacchaeus realized and then we know there was something supernatural about it. But when Jesus called him by name and let Zacchaeus know that he knew what was going on in his life. He knew who he was. He knew what he had done. He knew what led him there. He knew all of it. And when he realized Zacchaeus that Jesus knew and accepted him where he was, it had an effect upon his life. He knew that he wasn't being accepted because of a future version of what he would be later on. He wasn't being accepted because Jesus saw what he would be. He was being accepted because Jesus saw who he was, probably without his sin. See, one of the errors that we make, and we make this error for ourselves and we make this error for other people, is that we connect someone's sin to their identity. So we say Zacchaeus the publican, or Rahab the harlot, or Joe the alcoholic, or whoever the pedophile. You can't say a name because, you know. And, and, and we do that, we connect, or we, we think of ourselves, and we know ourselves, and so we know our issues. And we seek to identify ourselves by those things, and we speak of those things in our life as though they are a part of who we are. Listen, I want to tell you something, that made in the image of a holy God, it is not. The sin of a human being is not a part of their identity. It's something that has come into their life to replace something else that's missing Because every void needs, or every vacuum is a void that needs to be filled. And so, this man, Zacchaeus, he's not his sin, and he knows that Jesus is accepting himself where he is. Jesus is accepting, embracing, and honoring a man, even in his current condition. Do you know what this is called in the Bible? It's called grace. That's what this is called. It's called grace. Did you know that acceptance is a basic human need? Every human being has an innate, ingrained need to be accepted. When a person is accepted, truly accepted, not perceived or auditioning for acceptance, but when a person is really accepted by a group or a family or a place of employment or a group of friends, when there's true validation, at that point there's freedom because you don't live like you're trying to earn acceptance Every day is not an audition. Every action and word is not an evaluation. Will I be accepted? Can I maintain my acceptance? But when there's true acceptance, true validation, there's true freedom. That's why the Father said concerning the Son. Remember when Jesus was baptized? It says that the Spirit came upon him and the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son. What did he say? In whom I am. Am well pleased he didn't say in whom I will be well pleased in whom if he stays on the right path I will be well pleased no he front-loaded acceptance he knew that for Jesus as a man Under the influence of the elements to thrive in his ministry That he needed a word of affirmation and acceptance up front. That's what God gives He accepts up front For Zacchaeus The thought process is, you mean I'm accepted by God, even though I've been rejected by man? God accepts me in spite of my weakness, in spite of my failings, in spite of my choices, in spite of my past, in spite of the holes in my character, my abilities, in spite of my disabilities. God accepts me where I'm at. And when he realized that that's what he was being given, he stood. He didn't stay seated. And then watch what he does next. It says that he stood and then he said unto the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Not only did he stand, but he repented. There was no altar call. There was no call to repentance. Jesus didn't tell him he needed to get right. Do you know what happened here? Listen, I want you to understand this. What happened when Zacchaeus stood and he allowed Jesus into his life is that the sin in his life that was substituting for something else that he needed, that was lacking, now the actual need was being met. The thing that he was Filling his life with sin in order to cover the pain or to fill the vacuum in the void. Whatever that thing was, now the actual need, the need to be accepted by God, the need to be in relationship with God, that need has now been met. And what that does is it enables Zacchaeus to see the sin for what it is and realize, I don't need it anymore. See, I've got the real thing now. I was filling my life with money. I was filling my life with my work. I was filling my life with things and possessions and lying to myself and telling myself that I don't need, I don't need, and I have, and I have. And it was working except for the fact that I was miserable. But when I got the thing that I needed, when the void and the vacuum was filled with the thing that I needed, that I was made for, at that point I realized that what I've been filling it with doesn't really satisfy, and I don't need it anymore. And he willingly let it go. I don't need it. And see, that's what Jesus knew would happen. Do you realize that every vacuum must be filled? It will seek to be filled. Anything in my life that I lie to myself and I say, I don't need it, even though I do, that space is going to be filled with something. I realize as a dad that my kids have certain needs. They need to be led and they need to be loved. That's a need that they have. I have a part to play in providing that. If I don't do it, that vacuum and void is going to be filled with something else. They're going to find leadership and love somewhere because they need it. I realize that as a husband, my wife needs to be loved and nurtured. That's a need that she has. That's why she said I do. Otherwise, why would she bother the trouble of putting a ring on her finger and being a part of my life. She has needs. They're real needs. And she's looking to me to meet them. And if I don't, she can lie to herself and say that she doesn't need the thing that I'm not providing. But let me tell you that someone will. Someone will love her. And the vacuum and void is going to be filled with something. And every single human being that is a descendant of Adam has a need to be in a right relationship with the God who made them. That's a need that God has put. Someone has called it the God-shaped hole that's in every heart. And if we deny it and lie and say, I don't need it, there is something that's going to fill that void. And it could be money, it could be booze, it could be sex, it could be relationships, it could be food, it could be power, it could be authority, it could be world domination. You're going to fill that void with something. But when the moment happens, and God may it happen, that the thing that is supposed to be in that place comes into your life and into your heart. What you will quickly realize is what you've been putting in instead is a counterfeit that can't satisfy or sustain. It's salt water. It feels good going down, but it leaves me thirstier than I was before I drank it. Now Zacchaeus has Jesus. He doesn't need the sin anymore that's been in his life. Notice what Jesus says in response to uh, to Zacchaeus. It says that Jesus said to him, This day is salvation, come to this house. For as much as he also is a son of Abraham, and then the reason for the passage, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Notice Jesus' declaration. He says that he is saved salvation has come to this house now here is god's heart towards the lost he came to seek and to save that which is lost jesus in this story was the seeker it looks like nicodemus was doesn't it he's the one that wanted to see he went out on a branch but jesus was the seeker and jesus went out on the limb why Why does Jesus do this? He tells us because they that are whole have no need for a physician, but they that are sick. And if someone doesn't know God, then they are not whole. And it's important for us to understand this is foundationally true, is that Jesus did not come into this world and die on a cross in order to make good people better or to make flawed people more complete. Jesus came into this world to save sinners To raise the dead, to heal the sick, to complete the broken, and to redeem the lost. And do you know who falls into that category? Every single human being. And for you and I, as the people of God, to look at someone in their sinful condition, no matter how sinful that condition is, and to think even for a moment in our thoughts that that person is beyond the reach of God's arm of salvation, is for us to make God weaker than he is. He was strong enough to save me because I was okay. I was flawed but not defiled. But they're different. No, 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 no. He saves to the uttermost. Listen, the worst of the worst, these are the people that Jesus wants to save. That's why he kept company with them. And if he's desiring to reach them, then if we ignore and we malign and we hate and we marginalize those that live lifestyles that we don't agree with, then what are the chances of them being found by the one who's seeking to save them? And so the second half of the passage and the second question quickly that we find in this passage, what does it mean? What does this mean for those of us that are saved? Notice in verse 11 what Jesus says, or what it says. It says that as they heard these things he added do you see that it says that he added and spoke a parable in other words he connects the parable that he's about to tell with the statement he has just made that he came to seek and save that which is lost now what is the parable it says in verse 12 it says that a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return And so he called his ten servants and he delivered to them ten pounds. That's a a, a monetary value. He gave them money. And he said to them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And it came to pass that when he returned, that he received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to be called to him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And so came the first saying, Lord, your pound has gained 10 pounds, 100% return on the money you gave me to use. And he said to him, well, you good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. I've made 50% on the money you gave me to use. And the another came saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have kept, laid up in a napkin, for I feared you because you're an austere man and you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. No, no, you knew that I was an austere man, taking what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not give my money to the bank, that at my coming I might have required my own with interest at least? And he said unto them that stood by, Take, him, take from him the pound and give it to him that has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. For I say unto you, that unto every one which has shall be given, and from him that has not, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus gave this parable twice in the last seven days of his ministry. Twice Jesus gave this parable. Here... And then, after he got into Jerusalem, when his disciples wanted to know about the signs of the end times, he gave another version of it that had involved uh, five, two, and one. But it was a different time, a different telling. So, two times, Jesus gives this teaching in the last week of his ministry, and here he connects it to his desire to seek and to save that which is lost. So, what does that mean? He's already told us that that's his will, that's what he wants. The return on his investment is the salvation of souls. The who that he's trying to reach is the worst of the worst the tax collectors, the harlots, and the prostitutes. So, what is the currency that he gives to us and he gives us authority over in order that we might use it in order to reach the lost? You know what the currency is that he gives to us? It's grace. Because you read in the Bible, it says that we have been redeemed, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. It says that over and over again, not with corruptible money, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus supplied grace that's been given to us, and now God says, go extend grace. Give grace away. There's a man named Hortz Schulze, and God only knows who had the gall to name their child that. But he's the CEO and founder of the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. And he was recently interviewed about their customer service because their reputation for customer service is second to none. And they said, what's the secret? And he said, well, one of the secrets that I can tell you about our, our, our reputation and the reason is because Every single employee in the Ritz-Carlton family, everyone from the dishwasher to the busboy to the doorman, everyone has authority to spend up to $2,000 to make a complaint right with a customer. Meaning that anyone in the company can spend $2,000 without filling out a form or asking for approval or, or seeing if it's okay they have the authority on the spot to say, I'm so sorry that this happened. It's my fault. Please forgive me. Have, have a night for free or have a stay for free or have a meal. And they can, they can just give away up to $2,000 at that point. And, 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 and so I, I look at that and I say, that is exactly what God has done with us. What God has done with us is that he has given us authority to extend grace, to give credit to people that maybe don't deserve it. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 22, and you can read it. In fact, I'm going to have them put the reference up on the screen, not the words, but the reference, so that you can see where it is and you can go and read it later because we don't have time to read it. And I knew we wouldn't. That's why I told them to put the reference up that's not going up. But it's Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, and Jesus told a story that probably many of you are familiar with. He said that a man gave a wedding for his son, and he sent out his servants to invite the invited guests and tell them that it's time. And they all, one by one, made excuses and said that they can't come to the wedding. And he said, what? You're not going to come to my son's wedding? And so he sent the servants back out a second time, and he said, well, go just invite strangers then, anyone that you can find. And the servants said, okay, Lord, we did it, and some are coming, but there's still room And so Jesus went on to say, okay, go to the maimed, the blind, go to the lost, both the bad and the good, bid them to come that my house might be filled. Get them in, just get them in, invite them, bid them to come. And then Jesus added this, and this is why I want you to read the story. Because Jesus added and said that there was someone at the wedding feast that didn't have a wedding garment on, meaning they snuck in, but they never really got saved they were sinful and they held on to it and they hid in church and no one ever found out and they got they made it they're there but they have no wedding garment and jesus says that he will come at that moment and say to that one why aren't you wearing a wedding garment and then he will say bind him hand and foot and move him on out of here in another parable jesus told about the wheat and the tares. And he said that there would be tares that would rise up among the wheat. And they said, Lord, should we try to get the tares out of here? And he said, What? What did he say? Why? Let them grow together. together. Why? Because you don't know who's saved and who's not, and you're going to make a mistake and you're going to cut someone off who's really in when you thought they weren't. What does this mean? It means this here's the application is that you and I have been given a credit card of God's grace, paid in full already advanced by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, extend grace, extend acceptance, accept honor, I'm sorry, extend honor to the worst of the worst and bring them in, bring them in. Make the cake for the same sex couple that's asking you Christian at your bakery tell them you'll give it to them for free people ask me and they say if one of your kids was ever came out and they said that they were and they were marrying would you go to the wedding i would go to the wedding because to not go to the wedding they already know where i stand they know my position they know what the bible says what am i proving by not going to the wedding i'm saying hey when when you're when your train hits a wall because it's going to hit a wall don't come to me And they're not gonna. See, we extend grace. That's what Jesus did. He extended grace. And we're to extend grace. That's the point of the passage. No one who extended grace came back fruitless. Some a hundredfold, some 50, some 10. The only people that came back fruitless were the ones that were too afraid to extend grace and so they buried the talent in the ground. He came to seek and say which was lost. That's what he came to do. And so as we move into a response time, for those that have never heard the gospel, maybe you've never heard that the grace of God is extended towards you, that Jesus accepts you, that he's okay with you. I want you to know this. I want you to know you're here tonight. You don't know Jesus Christ. I want you to know that he knows you. He knows everything about you. And he accepts you. He accepts you just as you are. He embraces and he honors you. And the same invitation that he extends towards Zacchaeus, he extends towards you. And I'm going to say something very controversial here, but then I'm going to back it up with fact, and you'll be okay with it. Is that not only does Jesus accept you, he accepts you so much that he doesn't want to change you. Except in this one thing. He wants to remove the sin that you've placed in your life to substitute something else. And he wants to fill that place with himself. That's the only change that he wants to make. Every other thing will be a result of that. But he's not calling you, saying, I'll accept you when. That's not it. He knows how to separate the sin and replace it with the thing that's needed in your life. Everything else flows out of it. And He does that by grace. He front loads forgiveness and acceptance, and He invites Himself into your life. And maybe you're here tonight, I want to ask you to do something maybe a little bit brave. Maybe you don't know Jesus, I'm not Asking you to do this because I want to embarrass you If if you're hearing the voice of God tonight in this And that's you I I think that probably the last thing That you're concerned about right now Is what anybody else thinks But if that's you tonight And you say I receive it I'll believe it I'll accept the invitation I want you to do what Jesus asked Zacchaeus to do I want you to just stand Stand up maybe right where you are right now You want Jesus in your life? You want Jesus to save you? You say, Jesus, I need you to come in. I want you to receive. want to receive you. Now, I want you to know I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to be religious. And I'm not asking you to make promises to God that that you're going to do something in him. I'm asking you if you want to receive what Jesus has provided. For those maybe that are here tonight that you don't know Jesus. Or, I'm sorry, you do know Jesus. And maybe in your life you sense that there is a loss of power. You've been running on empty, you feel a little bit dry. Could it be perhaps that maybe the reason for that is because you've lost contact with the outlet? Do you know that in the physical world, energy, electricity only flows into something that it can flow out of? And it could be tonight that the reason why you're feeling dry, the the reason you're feeling powerless in your life, is because there's a dusty credit card somewhere in your salvation wallet and you've stopped extending grace to the worst of the worst. And maybe you're here and you just want that renewed. You want that power in your life. I invite you to stand. Let me pray for you tonight. Say, Jesus, I want your power in my life. I want to love sinners the way that you love sinners. I want to repent of being a Pharisee. I want to repent of looking upon people looking down on them because they haven't arrived or thinking that they're beyond your reach of salvation. And Lord, I want to know how to reach the unreachable or the seemingly unreachable. He said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so, Father, tonight we pray for those that have responded. And we ask, Lord, for those that stood to receive the invitation of you to come into their life. I pray in Jesus' name right now, Lord that the act of faith, of standing to their feet, that they would be met with a mighty influx of your love into their heart and in their life, that they would feel their sin and the things that have been filling the void, that they'd feel those things vaporizing, that your light would expose them for what they are, that your truth would reveal them, and that your love and your presence would fill them in such a powerful way that they would know that they're saved. Father, I pray for the rest. We ask, Lord, that you renew us in the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would forgive us, Lord, for being insulated and isolated. That you would forgive us for being judgmental and arrogant and thinking that we're better than anyone else. That you would forgive us for making you a God who only cares about the religious or those that are in church. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us a love, a burden for those that are lost. That you would put it in us, God, to see the value of a soul to see the value of the blood. So teach us to extend grace. Fill us with your spirit, with your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.